Did you hear the first word that Thomas read? Finally? Finally. Are you aware that Peter has five chapters, and this is the, the relatively at the beginning of chapter 3, and yet he says, finally. And then he goes on writing for as long as he's written so far. Now, I'm sure that you guys are familiar with this sort of rhetoric, this sort of tactic in preaching. I say, finally. I say my last point. One last thing, and you guys start looking for your phones, you start thinking about food and lunch and where you're going to go, and then I keep talking for another 10 minutes. Well, I'm sorry for that, but I can't do that today. I've promised the organizers of the reception for Steve and Lindsay uh, that I will be short and quick, um, and we want to have time to really celebrate them and send them off well. Uh, But Peter is making sort of a summation here. Even though it's in the middle of the letter, he's summarizing the the type of life that should come to characterize those who have experienced the gospel, those who have experienced the hope of Jesus, experienced what he started telling us at the very beginning of chapter 1. These people have experienced the great mercy that he, Jesus, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the beginning. And then he says here in verse 8, finally, let me begin to tell you. It's not that he hasn't hinted, it's not that he hasn't given ethical application so far, but here he tells us this is the radical sort of everyday Christianity that you are to be living. People who have experienced this turn from evil and begin doing good. Their everyday lives are radically reoriented. And that's why we've been calling this sermon series Everyday Christianity, that there's an everyday radicalness, an everyday radical generosity, an everyday self-sacrificing life, way of life. And that's what Peter is talking about, good, turning from evil, turning from self-absorption to self-sacrifice turning from lives that are oriented about what we want out of life and oriented instead towards the good of what Jesus wants to do in and through and with our lives. So this morning we're going to talk just about two brief things. And it's the title of the sermon is Everyday Goodness. And this is goodness towards one another, goodness towards the people who are in this room, the people who have experienced the mercy of Christ, and also everyday goodness towards our neighbors. But before we do so, let me pray for our time together. Father, we pray that you would grant us insight. We pray pray that you would grant us an impression of what it means to be recipients of your mercy, whether we have received that mercy, whether we have aligned our lives with it, or whether we're considering it, or whether we're skeptical that it could have any way in our lives any relevance in our stories. Wherever we're coming from this morning, Lord, would you meet us with the hope of mercy, of eternal grace, of never-ending love from the, one, from the one who made us. Lord, that is a tall order to do in 15 or 20 minutes, and certainly it's out of my ability. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and be present in these words. Would you make them your own, make them gifts to your people? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, goodness toward one another. 
Finally, he says in verse 8, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. It's a tall order. He's told his readers over and over that they're to be a people that are called, that are created, that are set apart, that are placed in a dangerous world to enact a very particular way of life that they both receive from Jesus and then also enact. That it's something that's given to them, but it's also something that's called forth out of them. That it's a very particular way of life that's lived in a very dangerous place, in an alien culture. And the danger that they experienced was very different than the danger that you and I experience. But it's very common to people around the world who know Jesus and live in this particular way of life and then are persecuted or dragged out of their homes, are not allowed to worship. So we need to kind of change our mindset to, for them, this first century danger and realize that even though we live in a a very protected way of life, that many people around the world, many of our brothers and sisters, absolutely do not. Now, we don't have time to look at each one of these words, but Peter is laying out descriptions of this new life in Christ that convey a profound attachment to one another, a profound pursuit of each other's good that is so radical that in some ways it causes people outside to say, what is going on over there? What is going on in this community? They are so radically attached to one another. They're so radically and profoundly attached to seeking each other's good. What is that all about? And we know that's hard work. And we know that that doesn't happen all that often. And it certainly doesn't happen just by simply willing it to be so. Love for one another, compassion or tenderheartedness, humility. These last three of that list, they actually flow out of the first two. These last three are more horizontal. They describe the community and how it relates to one another, but they flow out of the first two, which are more vertically oriented. These are the things that bind the community together. These are the answer for what is going on, on over there. Why is that community so odd and weird? They love each other so much. The answer is the, the first two. And it's a common inheritance and a common love. First of all, let's look at the common inheritance. And this is what Peter is conveying by saying you are to be like-minded. This is a shared intelligence, a shared perspective, a shared insight into the, the true way that life works. They have a common experience. They have a, received a common inheritance. And an inheritance, is, as you know, is something that you receive by virtue of being born into a certain context, being born into a certain family. It's not a reward for good behavior. It's not something you earn. It's something you receive. And what Peter is saying to his readers, what Peter is saying to you, in-towners, to you who are Christians, that you are all Christians by virtue of the same thing. You have received a common inheritance. And so be like-minded about that common inheritance, that common intelligence about the way that the world really is. You all have inherited salvation by grace. You all have inherited salvation by the merciful will of God. 
And when this becomes the center of your story, when this becomes the center of the church's story, an empathic imagination begins to develop. An empathic imagination, imagining how you can serve the person next to you. Imagining how you can be bound to their joys and sorrows, their good and bad circumstances. This tender heart is related to this. Tender heart means the, the word in the Greek actually has the, the underlying word of guts in it. A tender heart means allowing ourselves to be affected in our very guts by the lives of others. That in our very guts, we are almost enslaved to their good. We're enslaved to this community, to be a part of the lives of others, to be bound to the sorrows and the needs and the affections of other people because of this common inheritance. But then secondly, there's a common love, a common object of love. Yes, this is to, to reverberate in the community, but what Peter is talking about here is a common love that's vertical. What, this is what he means by being sympathetic. It's not the or, normal English meaning here of feeling sympathy or pity for someone's condition, but it's a shared passion. There's a shared object of love at the very center of the community. And this, is, this common object is what Peter has been throwing our imaginations at over and over through this letter. He's been turning our affection towards Jesus. And then it's love of Him, it's a common love of Him that enables humility, that enables love for one another. How can we love the one who laid down His life for us? How can we love the one who went to the cross for His enemies, who picked up a towel and washed people's feet and not then demonstrate that sort of love for others? How can we not be humbled by that type of love for us. Now let's be honest. This is quite a different experience than what many of us have experienced in the church. There's a lot of hurt in the church. And notice in the very next sentence in verse 9, Peter has this very realistic assessment of the church as a type of community where evil and abuse can still occur. Verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. I did a, just a quick search looking around at the books on my library shelf, and here were some titles that showed up. The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse, In Sheep's Clothing, Dealing with Manipulative People in the Church, Antagonist in the church, well-intentioned dragons. There are some really mean people who find healing in the church and begin to give that healing to others. And there are some really mean people that leave a trail of, of trauma and of tears and hurt in the name of Jesus. And believe me, I know I've had a front row seat to this for the last 15 years of ministry of people hurting each other in the name of Jesus. There's a demonstration planned today at a large megachurch in Seattle where people are gathering to bring attention to years of spiritual and emotional abuse that 
was allegedly committed by the very prominent pastor and a few carefully selected elders. These are the things that make headlines, and these are the things that probably have convinced many of you that you're interested in Jesus, but not really his church. You're not really interested in being bound together because it is a place where you can get hurt. It's a place where even though you demonstrate love, you can receive great pain. These are the things that make headlines, and there are nasty people in just about every church, but there are also people who are nasty, who have an explosion of grace in their heart, that they see Jesus' mercy pursuing them over and over and over, and it begins to to crumble them. It begins to tender them. It begins to make them into people of grace. They see this undeniable call to extend grace to others. They understand for once and for all this enemy love that Jesus extended to them. There's a powerful natural inclination for all of us to repay evil for evil, abuse for abuse, retaliate, take revenge. The mathematics of this sort of life make sense. This mental calculus is is very easy if we don't do the hard work of coming to understand the common inheritance that we have and the common love. If we don't do that, that our habituation toward repayment, toward stinginess, towards anger and animosity continues just to, to roll on in the church just like it does outside. But a community with Jesus at its center is called to a different a revolutionary, a very countercultural way of life. It's to habitually practice radical sympathy, radical love and compassion and humility in a very intentional way that becomes sort of the, the new normal. And it is to be habitually and radically practiced in a way that at some level is shocking to those looking in from the outside. Sam Bowers was the imperial wizard of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi in the 60s. And before dawn on January 10th in 1966, he and two carloads of his fellow Klansmen drove to a house about five miles north of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And this house belonged to a guy named Vernon Dahmer. And he and his family were asleep when the Klansmen doused his home with fire or with gasoline and set it on fire. His 10-year-old daughter was injured in the fire, and Dahmer himself was killed. More than three decades later, in 1998, Sam Bowers was finally convicted of that crime. And witnesses testified that Bowers had ordered the killing and participated in the killing because Dahmer was allowing black voters to pay their poll taxes in his store. That was his crime that was worth capital punishment. One of the individuals present in the courthouse for Bowers' trial was the Reverend Will Campbell. And he had been friends with Vernon Dahmer at Ole Miss when they were working on civil rights issues and voting rights issues. And so, being that he was such good friends with Vernon, the courtroom reporters were shocked when they saw Campbell being embraced as an old friend, not only by Ellie Dahmer, the wife of uh, or Vernon's widow, but also by the defend, defendant, clam, <coughs> excuse me, Klansman Sam Bowers. 
And people noticed that he was talking with equal warmth to both her and to him. And when a reporter asked how he could possibly be so friendly with both the victim and the monster who had committed murder, Campbell growled in his usual salty language, because I'm a Christian, damn it. Sorry, parents. It was actually worse than that. I, I kind of tempered it. But it's so obvious to him that, of course, I have to embrace this person. He's a, a fellow human being. He understands that he has inherited grace, not gained grace, not been rewarded grace. And so, therefore, he can see himself in the place of the defendant. He, understand, he understood that he'd received an inheritance, that he was a loved sinner. And so it created this empathic imagination that he had grace to share even with the very worst of the offenders. We need to see also that there is a goodness that is called toward the outsider. In verse 15, Peter says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. I was part of a a campus ministry in college that um, encouraged aggressive engagement with non-Christians to get them to a point of decision about Jesus Christ. And we were deployed two by two on beaches in the summer to engage people in conversation about spiritual things. Being prepared to give an answer meant being prepared to give an answer to the questions that we provoked by interrupting someone's vacation on the beach. This is not really what Peter is recommending, thankfully. For starters, Peter tells his readers that they are to engage people with gentleness and with respect. But also, there's good news for us introverts because the focus seems to be upon others starting conversations, others that may be shocked by the behavior, just like the newspaper reporter was shocked by Will Campbell's behavior, that he could extend grace to someone like Sam Bowers. It's not your words that necessarily prompt the dialogue, but it's the the way of life. It's that grace is so sunk into your life that it reverberates outward and it changes you from the inside out. Now the problem, however, with this is it often rarely happens. How many of you have been asked this week to give an answer for the hope that you have? Probably very few of us. You see, we can can have an arsenal of great answers, but what if the world isn't interested in the questions? What's wrong? Is it Peter's expectations or is it our experience only. We need to notice the pronouns because in in a very individualistic culture, we're bound to read this passage or read this verse and replace you with I or me rather than us. We need to remember that Peter is writing to a gathered community in particular places. He's writing to the church. And the culmination of this verse, this line of thinking that began in verse 8, The common love, common passion, internal kindness, radical compassion, radical humility. That these are qualities that are to exist in a community that becomes then provocative. In a world that's so given to power and prestige, 
why does that community align itself so radically with those on the margins? In a nation of consumption and materialism, why does this church put its own financial well-being at risk for others? In a cultural climate that puts self at the very center of the universe, why do these people not fear binding themselves that deeply to others? How can they see fit to live such a subordinate life and yet have great joy in doing it? These are the sorts of questions that I think Peter is trying to get the church to provoke. But it takes a very radical commitment. It's not just having the answers. It's not just knowing how to debate someone. It's living a life with Jesus at the very center that changes, that radically reorients the whole meaning of what it means to be a community. The answer, friends, he gives us in verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Sanctify or make room in your hearts for only one sovereign. Make room in your hearts for only one Lord and Master and King. But you do so by remembering that this is the one Lord and Master and King who exerts his sovereignty on a cross. Who submits himself to your need. Who gives you grace. Who is a friend of failures. He is the one Lord and Master and King who is for you. And in Him we share the infinite mercy of God Himself. And this is the answer. The key is not your eloquence. The key is not my eloquence. The key is not debate skills. It's not the gift of gab. It's not being extroverted, thankfully. But always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Friends, Jesus is that hope. That's what Peter has been driving at this whole letter. And he says, finally, do you get this? Be prepared to give an answer. And that answer is your hope in Jesus. It's not your own strength. It's not your own merit. It's not your oratory or debate skills. It's Jesus. And it's him who is the hope. And he is truly the end of the world as we know it. It is his life, his death, his resurrection. It's the story that he lived on behalf of the church and on behalf of the world. It's his life that he gave up and rendered you perfect by grace. And you see, the, the church that's, that gets this, that understands this, can have the internal confidence to engage the culture's alternative story with the better answers of the gospel. We can find commonality to some of the, the threads of life, to some of the stories that the culture is living by, and yet give the better answer of the gospel and reframe it, not in a way of debate, but with humility to understand that we were saved by grace and loving dialogue rather than disputation or debate. And a church that gets this doesn't serve as a, a club or a religious association that's content just to distribute religious goods and services to its members. But instead it becomes a servant society that's pouring out its resources for the good of its neighbors. When the gospel is at the center of the church, when the gospel is at the center of your community group, of your family... There's an alternative to the, the self-absorption self that secularism can often breed. 
and also to the the tribal self-righteousness that religion can breed. There's a third way, and that third way is the answer. And it's in verse 18, and we'll end here. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. That's the answer. That's the hope. That's all you've got to point to. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would rest in that answer. That we would walk with great humility and at the same time great confidence because we know there's nothing that can be taken away from us that would outweigh the gift of salvation that you have given us. Father, I pray that as a church we would be united as a a service society. I pray that you would make us to boldly give up our resources for our neighbors. That we would boldly give up our right to be right in order to forgive the person next to us. Father, I pray that you would make us a, a contrast society that where Jesus is truly at the center. Lord, do this as we confess our faith and as we come to your table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.